Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Last Wednesday we commemorated the ascension of our Lord. The ascension is the culmination of our Lord's state of exaltation. It was Christ's visible entrance, according to his human nature, into his heavenly kingdom. Jesus now sits at the right hand of God, where he fully and constantly participates, according to his human nature, in ruling heaven and earth and all creatures. Him, God the Father, has exalted. His name is above every name. Indeed, it is the only name under heaven by which we can be saved. The man Jesus is worshipped by the fiery seraphim and the strange-looking cherubim. The man Jesus is now everywhere, working all things together for the good of those that love him. It would be easy for us to become intoxicated with this hurrah spirit. That's why this gospel lesson, appointed for the Sunday after the ascension, is a splash of cold water in our faces. This text brings us back down to earth. And yet, at the same time, it gives us comfort. Today we will meditate upon Jesus' words, These things I have spoken to you, that you should not be made to stumble. First, we will speak of what Jesus has spoken to us of the coming rejection and persecution, and then we will hear what Jesus has spoken to us concerning the paraclete and his comfort. Jesus has spoken to us of coming rejection and persecution. Jesus said in our text today, They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. Now when we think of persecution, we usually think about the world. The world is very evil. Pray against the world in the Lord's Prayer. We pray that God would break and hinder the will of the devil, our sinful flesh, and the will of the world. Why? Well, it's the world's will not to honor God's name or to let his kingdom come. The world does this in many ways. The world has a scornful smile for Christians. It's almost as if the world is saying to us, Oh, you poor, deluded fools. If God exists, then he does not see, nor does he understand. The world also has a red frown for Christians, too. We know this. We know that the world hates us. Jesus said so in the Gospel of John. He said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So should we be surprised when governments gag us, companies blackball us, or society sneers at us? If we belong to Jesus, then we are at odds with the world. If we belong to the world, then we are at odds with Jesus. That's why we cannot play nice with the world. And we shouldn't expect the world to play nice with us either. Oftentimes I think we have this notion, this mistaken notion, that the world is some sort of neutral, demilitarized zone 
where God and the devil jockey for position by flirting with and seeking to bribe its denizens. But the world isn't that way. The world isn't Plato's cave or the Matrix, where the only problem with people is that they're simply ignorant. And if they only knew better, then they'd wake up. No. What the Bible teaches us is that the world is an anti-Christian power, which opposes us either grossly or subtly all the time. Disney, Facebook, our economy, our neighborhood Wiccans living next door. The world hates us because the world hates Jesus. Therefore, the world is very evil. But Jesus here in this text is not actually talking about the world, not at least in the sense that we are thinking of. Here, Jesus is talking about the institutional church herself. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God's service. Jesus mentions two things here. He mentions synagogues and he mentions service. So we need to look at those two words and understand them in order to understand what Jesus is saying. First, synagogue. What is it? The word synagogue means a gathering together, an assembly. And it seems like the earliest synagogues, the houses of assembly and prayer of the Jewish congregations, originated in Babylon during the exile of the Jews after the destruction of the first temple and in the Persian period. We know from the Bible that Jesus preached and taught in the synagogues, in Nazareth and in Capernaum and in all over uh, the place. The book of Acts mentions the synagogues 22 times. Stephen preached in the synagogues of the freedmen. Paul preached in the synagogues of Damascus, Iconium, and Ephesus. In short, synagogues were church buildings, like this one. They were a place where the people of God gathered together to hear the law, to hear the prophets, to hear sermons, to pray, and to sing. That's what we do in church today. Next, what does service here mean? Well, service here means worship. This is what God actually says to Moses in Exodus 3.12. He comforts Moses by saying these words, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And the whole conflict between Moses and Pharaoh in Exodus chapters 4 through 10 hinges on the demand of Exodus 7:16, where God says, Let my people go so that they might serve me in the wilderness. This word service is also used of celebrating the Passover. In short here, the word service is the same word for worship, especially sacrifice. So what are we learning? The world, crassly evil and secular, isn't the only entity that will reject us. We Christians shall actually be rejected by the institutional church. We shall be excommunicated by those who believe that they are preaching God's word. In fact, Jesus here says that we shall be murdered 
by those who think that spilling our blood is a sweet aroma in the nostrils of God, and that our death is actually the highest form of worship. This prophecy of Christ is fulfilled many, many, many times in Scripture. Right away in the book of Acts, we see that some men from the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Sicilia and Asia, oppose and bear false witness against the preaching of Stephen, who is the first martyr. In Antioch of Pisidia, we see the progression and the persecution of the word of God. Many Gentiles believed, but the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. At Thessalonica, the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And in Corinth, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I go to the Gentiles. The historical record of Acts bears out Jesus' prophecy. The book of Revelation also reveals to us the opposition of the institutional church. In two places, Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the Apostle John says that there are those who claim to be Jews but are not. What does he mean by this? Well, that means that they claim to be true believers and right worshipers of the true God. But they aren't. They actually worship a false God. They are not true believers because they don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Instead, John says, they belong to the synagogue of Satan. But Jesus' prophecy wasn't just for the New, es- the New Testament period, however. We see the institutional church has fulfilled Jesus' prophecy that we shall be excommunicated and killed for the sake of Jesus and for his gospel. I mean, look at Martin Luther. He was excommunicated by Pope Leo X in 1520 with the bull Exerge Domini. Two gospel-centered monks, Heinrich Vos and Johann Esch, were burned at the stake in Brussels on July 1st, 1523. And their last words were, we will die as Christians for the, and for the truth of the gospel. They actually sang the Te Deum until the flames engulfed their bodies. And that's what the first Reformation hymn, A New Song Now Shall Be Begun, was written for. It was written to commemorate these two men and their martyrdom. Now you might be thinking to yourself, well, that's all ancient history. Today isn't like the book of Acts. Today isn't like the 1520s. That's actually where you're mistaken. 
Do you know that you've actually been excommunicated by the Roman Catholic Church? In their councils, in their canons, that they still hold to today, the Roman Catholic Church has actually excommunicated to us. Excommunicated us. Listen to what Canon 12 of the Council of Trent says. It says, If anyone shall say that justifying faith is nothing else than confidence in the divine mercy pardoning sins for Christ's sake, or that it is that confidence alone by which we are justified, let him be accursed. And here is Canon 14. If anyone saith that a man is truly absolved from his sins and justified, because he, that he assuredly believed himself absolved and justified, or that no one is truly justified, but he who believes himself justified, and that by this faith alone absolution and justification are effected, let him be anathema. I mean, don't you see? This is a direct attack on justification by faith alone. That by faith alone, we are received into God's mercy. That God uh, justifies, that he declares us righteous, not by what we have done, but by faith. That's what we believe. That's what we teach. That's what we confess. That's what the Bible teaches. And yet they're saying that whoever believes this is damned. Whoever believes this is accursed. They will put you out of the synagogues. It still rings true today. Jesus' words also come to pass on a local congregational level too. Pastors are thrown out of their parishes for teaching closed communion and for calling sin, sin. Pious souls are scandalized and lacerated when congregations actively oppose God's word by allowing women to preach and to read the lessons, when cohabitating couples are not rebuked and corrected, and when God's word is not taught in its truth and purity. And maybe some of you have experienced this very thing. Maybe some of you have relatives or friends who suffer this too. And what is the result when they boldly confess? What is the result when they stand up for what is right? Well, you hear things like this. You're a Pharisee with your man-made rules. You're not loving like Jesus is loving. How dare you? God wanted us to move in together. That's why she sold her house so quickly. I mean, don't you know that the Bible says, judge not, lest you be judged? They will put you out of the synagogues. Jesus has warned you what's coming. So don't stumble. Don't be scandalized when these things happen right in the midst of seemingly pious, faithful, and orthodox Lutheran congregations. Don't say things like, well, the pastor could have handled things better. He could have been nicer in the way that he talked. Of course that's true. Who is sufficient for these things? But the question that you really have to ask is this. Did he speak God's word to you or not? And don't say, well, they're just a fighty congregation. That person is just that way. You just have to tread lightly. You just have to get used to it. No, 
That's not what we believe. The gospel actually does change people. And if you don't believe that, go back and read Ezekiel, where he says that he will give us a new mind and a new heart, and that he will cause us to walk in all of his judgments and statutes. The gospel doesn't actually change us. And then are we actually of Christ? Or are we of the world? And you see, there's no gray area here. Jesus told us of the coming rejection, so that way we might not be scandalized, and we might not stumble. But Jesus has spoken to us of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, and of his comfort. Despite the rejection that we will face from men and from our own synagogues, that is, from our own Lutheran congregations, we have and we shall continue to receive the Helper's comfort. Jesus says, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. The Holy Spirit is the Helper. He is the Paraclete. He is the Defender. He's the one who advocates for us. He defends us. He helps us. He comforts us. Jesus will send the paraclete from the Father. And this means that the helper, the defender, the comforter that we are receiving is God himself. Because the Holy Spirit is God. He proceeds from the Father and from the Son. And if it's God's comfort, then it's comforting indeed. Who is this Spirit? Well, Jesus calls him the Spirit of truth. He is not a lying spirit which deceived and destroyed Ahab. He's not a murderous spirit like the devil. No, this spirit is the spirit of truth because he tells us the truth. And what is this truth? He will testify of me. The spirit of truth testifies of Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. This spirit actually tells us who God is. God does not want our excommunication. God doesn't want our blood. He doesn't want our deaths. He is not like the devil Zeus who destroyed a generation of good men on the shores of Ilium. He is not the satanic Odin who betrays his own followers into death so that, they, so that he might have a greater army on Ragnarok, the twilight of the gods. Our God is not some blob, uncaring God of Hinduism, nor is he the non-God of Buddhism. Those religions are lies. They don't teach the truth. Our God, on the other hand, is not pleased when the world kills us because they have been deluded. They have been deluded by a lie which seeks to destroy the gospel and us and claim that it was actually a service to God. No, The Spirit teaches us the truth. The Spirit teaches us the truth that God wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And that truth is that by Jesus' blood and merit, I now have peace with God. By the truth of Jesus' righteousness, I am now a son of God by faith. By the truth of Jesus' glorious resurrection, 
I can now laugh at the gaping grave and the slavering sepulcher because I know that my body shall rise again on the last day and that I shall see my Savior face to face. By the truth of his glorious ascension, I am now confident that Christ now rules all things for his church's benefit, that he has gone ahead to prepare a place in his Father's mansion for all who trust in him, that he shall come again to judge the living and the dead, and that he shall right every wrong at the end of time. And by the truth of his Holy Spirit's coming, we know that our hearts are replaced. Our hearts of stone are taken out, and we are given new hearts of flesh. We are hallowed by God, that we uh, are caused by him to walk in his judgments and in his statutes, and that he is our God, and that we are his people. Let God be true, and every man a liar. And this truth shall stand no matter how much the world and uh, the devil and our own flesh tries to gaslight us. Christ has sent the Helper. The Helper has testified of Christ. And now, despite passing through fire and water, through trial and temptation, we are at peace and we are confident. We shall not stumble. We shall not be scandalized when these things happen. We know the dangers because Christ has lovingly forewarned us, but even more importantly, we know the comforting truth that the paraclete delivers to us today. Christ speaks these things to us today just as he spoke them to the apostles of old. He says these things because he loves us. He does not want us to ignorantly stumble and fall into unbelief, despair, or other great shame and vice. Instead, our Lord Jesus enlightens us by warning us of the dangers ahead and of the glorious comfort that we receive right now through his word and through his sacraments. Amen.